0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today we're going to be having an interesting and I think kind of unique conversation. It's going to be about men in the pro-life movement because... Men are basically told by the culture That they should shut up and sit down Or support abortion And even inside the pro-life movement They often feel like their voice Is, is almost a negative thing It's something. It's a drawback rather than a benefit And so to have a discussion About men in the pro-life movement I wanted to talk to uh, Pro-life activist and filmmaker Jason Jones Those of you who have been listening To this show regularly will know That he's been on this show once before To talk about his story uh, His story is incredible incredibly powerful. And so Jason agreed to come back on the show and have a discussion about men in the pro-life movement. Just to give you a bit of background, uh, Jason is an American film producer. He was actually the producer of the very well-known film, Bella. He is the president and founder of Hero Incorporated and the movie-to-movement organization. He began working in the pro-life movement uh, while attending the University of Hawaii and he's basically worked in the pro-life movement for 30 years in every imaginable capacity. One of the things that I love about the pro-life movement is that there's just people from every different walk of life, from every faith background, and they're all really united uh, behind the idea that all human lives matter and that we have a duty to protect and defend the weak and the vulnerable in society. And so Jason Jones agreed to come on and have a conversation about the role of men in the pro-life movement and why men are so needed, and this is that conversation. Thanks for listening. (laughs) All right, Jason, uh, a lot of our viewers and listeners are already very familiar with your work, but maybe give us a bit of a rundown on your entry into the pro-life movement, especially from the perspective of being a male in the pro-life movement. Because I remember something you, you said to me uh, when, we, when we last spoke, when we last did an interview on this podcast, and you said, when faced with abortion, when, when you've experienced abortion, men explode and women implode. And I thought uh, we really should have a, a longer discussion about that and about the role of men in the pro-life movement. And so let's hear a bit uh, of your story.
1: Yeah, well, that that men explode, women implode is something that Vicki Thorne shared with me. Okay. Vicki Thorne is the f- founder of Project Rachel. And so she's been working with poster board of women uh, and men, but mostly women since the 1970s. Right. And so when Vicky said that to me, that chilled me to the bone because I personally very well know that for 31 years, I've been exploding in relentless activity, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. I'm sort of just driven. The way I explain it to people is I feel like I've been pushed into a river and I'm just gone. Um, And and I was pushed into that river as a 17-year-old and as a young man. I was actually 16 when I found out my high school girlfriend was pregnant and I joined the army and in basic training, while I was uh, in basic training, just a couple of weeks before I was to come home, her father found out she was pregnant and forced her to have an abortion. And I found out that my child had been destroyed when my high school girlfriend's father said over the line, cause she couldn't even tell me. She just kept crying saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And... Then her father said, we know your secret and your secret's gone. You can come home now. I took Katie to get an abortion. And for me, that was the inciting incident of my life. I'd say that's where I was shoved in the river. And I exploded. Did not know there was a pro-life movement. Right. Didn't even know the word pro-life, pro-choice. I did not even know abortion was legal, excuse me, until, uh, until I found out I lost my child to abortion. Wow. As strange as it sounds, this is in the 80s before cable news, before the internet. And after the abortion, when I got sent to my duty station, I went to a library and we had a very small post library and it was one book. And I think the title was like something like Roe v. Wade in focus. And it was published by the Alan Gutmacher Institute, right. which is the recent term of Planned Parenthood. And uh, so I had to go by and, but I exploded. And I'd say for the first 10 years even though I was involved in the pro-life movement, it wasn't very healthy. Right. It wasn't until I became a Christian that I could say that I was able to harness that explosive force that was caused by the abortion and to use it in a way that was constructive.
0: And and if I recall um, the details of your story correctly, it's not like you were one of those guys who found out that your high school girlfriend was pregnant, you know, wanted nothing to do with it, wanted to, you know, run away. You were willing to take responsibility, make the money, care for her and care for the baby, which makes this story even in some ways more tragic and more difficult to understand.
1: Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that because I think a lot of young people who find themselves in crisis pregnancies, who become clients to crisis pregnancy centers or potential victims to the abortion industry, they get in these pregnancies because they're from broken homes And they, people will say it's because they wanted someone to love them, but I don't, I don't believe that's true. I think it's just this natural desire that young people have, that children have to have a family. And when you don't have a family, it's sort of this rush to go out there and build from scratch, which you wish you had. Yeah. And of course you don't have, I barely have those resources now inside (laughs) of me as a 48 year old. But as a 17-year-old who my parents, my mother was 16 when she had me, and my parents were married, but they were divorced the first year. My mother had a succession of marriages and divorces. And so coming from that, I had this noble ambition. I was really excited to be a father, as strange as that sounds. And I had this vision of the great father I would be. Right. My, daydream, my daydream from my earliest days, I always ask people, what do you daydream about on my podcast. It's one of my favorite questions to ask people. And what I used to daydream about as a boy was my family, having a family. I had the whole house in my mind, you right. know. It would be a, I'd, I'd have a coffee table with board games, and I'd have a heavy bag and a pull-up bar and a speed bag and a refrigerator filled with food and a house full of books. And we would laugh and play, and it'd be joyful. And, and you know, I kind of now I have that. I was able to build this dream I'd had been daydreaming about as a boy. So as a 17 year old who I fell into this crisis pregnancy and I don't, I hate calling it that, but, when I say that, everyone knows what we mean, right? Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. So one of the, so one of the interesting things that I wanted to get into with you, especially as we discuss the way men react to abortion in the pro-life movement, the everybody, every man in today's society is reacting to abortion somehow. They're either yeah, deciding true. not to do anything about it. They're pushing a girl to have an abortion through either uh, apathy or actual pressure. They're manning up and saying, I will do anything I can to take care of the baby. Uh, men in, in today's culture, where we've killed 65 million babies in the United States, we've killed 4 million in Canada. Everybody has to make a decision, regardless of whether or not that decision just is in action. And the pro life movement has done a really good job of, of analyzing the impact that abortion has had on women uh, and really exploring what abortion does to the woman psychologically, physically, the side effects. And the we've also done a very good job, I think, uh, focusing on what abortion does to the to the child, right? The the brutal dismemberment, the you know, suction, shredding, all of that. And so we've done a very good job of examining abortion in the context of of what it does to women, of what it does to the pre-born child. But the person who often doesn't get talked about at all in, in these scenarios is the man. And I often say that like abortion is is unnatural for three reasons. It's because it violates the mother's maternal instinct. It violates the father's paternal instinct and protective instinct. And then, of course, it violates uh, the child's very uh, humanity. But we haven't done a good job of talking about the male protective instinct, uh, how that actually applies to abortion, and 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 this is on both sides. We often don't talk about how men are a victim of the abortion industry. Uh, one story, really quickly, I remember the most heartbreaking story I heard. Uh, this is years ago, from from a friend um, back in university. He told me that he was pro-choice until the moment his girlfriend walked in through the door and told him that she was pregnant. And he instantly knew that's a real baby. That's my baby. I need to do what I can to take care of that child. And she walked through the door while he was on his knees begging her not to go to get an abortion. And their relationship didn't survive much longer than the child did. And so there's also just... Horrifying stories like that, which you can understand far better than most. You probably saw that video that went viral on Twitter um, on Father's Day, actually, of that young man just broken on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic, just begging, begging his girlfriend not to kill their baby. And like I can still hear his voice in my head, that that desperation, right? I have I have two children and the idea that you'd have no power to protect your own child, that that, that is a wound to to a man, to, to everything that we're, we're programmed to do in a way that's very difficult for people to explain. So how would you start to explain, based on your experience, but also three decades in the pro-life movement, of what abortion does to men? How can we start a conversation about that? Because I, I don't think the pro-life movement's done a very good job of talking about
1: it. No. Well, you know, there's uh, there's music is a great place to look for the impact of abortion on women and men. And there are two powerful songs by Kid Rock, one called Abortion and one called uh, Black Chick, White Guy. They're both X-rated songs, especially Black Chick, White Guy. But they both those both of those songs. uh, Kid Rock is sharing what really happened to him. And how he he how he exploded, right? In violence and suicidal ideation and drug abuse as a result of those abortions. And I can tell you, for me, after the abortions, I became very angry. Now, to set this up for your pro-choice trolls, you know, the abortion industry trolls were watching. Mm-hmm. I, I I was never went. To, I never went to church a day in my life. I grew up around drug addiction, adultery, divorce. Right. This was my normal. This was just what normal was. Christians were freaks and weirdos. Didn't know anything about politics one way or the other. Um, I was a big reader. Um, and so I thank God for that. I just loved fiction. And in my junior high, I discovered Harrison Bergeron, Kurt Vonnegut, and Ayn Rand and other novelists who began to impact me and sort of laid the groundwork for this idea of the rights and the dignity of the human person against the collective.
0: Kurt Vonnegut and Ayn Rand, eh? I think both of them would probably be pro-abortion.
1: Yes, but what, what they did for me, and I wrote a, a a story on my conversion story, an article for National Review, called How Ayn Rand, Sartre, and Roe v. Wade Made Me a Christian. <laughs> That's a conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, so but that was sort of as far as my formation went. Um but I knew the basics of human development. And so when the abortion happened, I knew immediately that my child had been destroyed. This child I'd been thinking about, knowing that my child was existing, daydreaming about couldn't wait to meet. And in fact, had been daydreaming about this moment my whole life, not just that I would have a baby, but that I would be a loving father, a protective father, that my children would know laughter and joy and peace. And so when the abortion happened, it was as if I failed in what I had been daydreaming about from my earliest memories. Right. When, you know, my dad left for the army when I was two or three, didn't come back till I was seven. And then my mother had gotten remarried when I was two to a very good man. He was an alcoholic, but he was a very good man, the one stable force in all of our lives. But when anything got strange, when my mother would get separated or there'd be violence or chaos in the house, I would go to my room and daydream about the kind of father I would be. Right. And so here I was, I failed to protect my child even to birth. This wasn't formed by right-wing politics. This wasn't formed by religion. This was a young man who got a solid C in, you know, 7th grade biology and knew the basics of human development. <laughs> right. Knew when my girlfriend was pregnant, that I had a baby, and that I knew that my baby had been destroyed and that the whole world agreed with it. It's okay to do that. That shocked me. And I became very angry. I remember <clears throat> what I thought about, it. it's going to sound strange, but I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood, it was the greatest neighborhood to be from. And so I had a lot of black friends, didn't know anything about racism until like sixth grade, seventh grade. And we watched a film strip. One of those things, or you're too young to remember, but the teacher would show it. And then you do it, hit a button and then the picture would change and there'd be a recording and then it'd go bing. And you you never, okay. see- You've never seen a film strip, have you?
0: I don't think so, no.
1: Okay, well, trust me, they're real. And (laughs) it was a a film strip on the civil rights movement. And it was police with clubs and hoses attacking children just a few short years before in my own beloved America. And what I thought when I found out about the abortion of my captain and my basic training unit walked me through how this was legal my first thought was, How many dirty secrets do we have as a country? I was very angry at everybody. My first year in the Army, I had three Article 15s for fighting. So I was fighting all the time. And if somebody told me that we tried to defend abortion, they were in a fight um, immediately. And this carried on through my college years. You know, I got kicked out of a dorm for running across the room and tackling a guy for saying he was pro choice. I heard it out of the corner of my ear.
0: Okay. No yeah.
1: So that's exploding, right? That's yeah. exploding angry. Then when I was sort of learning how to harness this a little bit and I was working in the pro-life movement, I still never told anyone my story because we weren't telling our stories in the eighties and nineties. Something me to yourself. No one knew why I was so passionate about abortion. Even my closest friends didn't get it. Like, you know, they just thought I was weird. You're not a Christian. You're not a, you know, you know, right-wing guy, like, we don't understand this obsession of yours with abortion. And, um, but as I was beginning to learn how to to harness this energy, I remember, and I was being very involved in politics now and media and pro-life groups, and Christians were constantly trying to evangelize me. And I had this great fear of becoming a Christian because I didn't want my anger to go away. I knew knew that I worked at a clip. I worked at an intensity uh, that I didn't see in other people. And already at that point, I had been six, seven years in the pro-life movement. And I saw people come and go. I call them tourists. You know, they show up to the movement. They act like they own the place and they leave. And even six or seven years in, I'd seen tourists come and go. And I thought, if I become a Christian, I won't be angry anymore. If I'm not angry anymore... I'll be lazy like all these Christians, you see? Right, la-di-da. God's will, whoa, God's got it. And I didn't want that. And I remembered I almost was superstitious in my fear when I ascended to the truth of Christianity and was becoming baptized and confirmed in the Catholic Church. I almost had this superstitious fear of, after my baptism and confirmation, I'll quit, or I'll be good with it all, or I'll just... But what happened to me... I would say it became cleaner, became clean. Right. My intensity didn't diminish at all. I still exploded, um, but it was now sort of a combustion engine.
0: Yeah, more directed. Like Chesterton always says that you should fight not just because you hate what's in front of you, but because you love what's behind you.
1: Yes, that's right. And and it was true to me. I wanted to end abortion. I would tell professors in college, "I'm going to end abortion," and then after I end abortion. I'm gonna I'm gonna write history books and I'm gonna make sure you're in the history book as an advocate of abortion so the rest of humanity for the rest of history is disgusted by you. I would say things like that. Right. Like to, to me it was revenge. I would say my revenge on the abortion of my child is I'm gonna save as many children as possible. But but for me it was almost like vengeance. And it was done out of love, love for my child, also maybe pride that I was angry that I. That I wanted to protect my children and by the abortion industry, I was robbed of this and defeated and um, but yeah, now for women it's the same thing. I find that my friends who are post-abortive who have gone to Project Rachel for example, or love from above and these other pro- programs that they have this beautiful gift of empathy that the they've imploded they've hurt themselves with drugs and You know, bad relationships and suicidal ideation, all these things that they've done to themselves. But the most loving, kind and gentle people I have ever met are post-abortive women. Because of the implosion that birthed in them empathy. And that empathy is what makes them so kind and loving. So to take
0: a look at, at at men in the context of the abortion debate, I want your thoughts on this. I've uh, I've given a lot of talks on on men in the pro-life movement because I think that the pro-life movement has far too few men, and we'll get into some of the reasons for that later on. But one of the reasons that I wanted to broach with you is that the idea of being a protector in today's culture is very frowned upon. It's there's this assertion, right, that this it's toxic masculinity. Nobody needs any protection anymore. Um, like, like I, I remember uh, in the Netherlands a couple of years ago, there was uh, a, uh, an outbreak of, of of sexual assaults that were taking place. And in order to show their support for these women, a bunch of guys did a, a march in solidarity, and they had shaved their legs and worn miniskirts. This was the way that They showed the women like we're with you, not by saying we'll protect you, right? We'll, you know, we'll, we'll try to be there for you. Uh, and I remember at the time seeing the video. I'm like, this is just what what a joke. But like out, a little bit later, I'm like, actually, if, if they had stood up and actually said, like, look, we're gonna be there for you. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be sheepdogs keeping out the wolves, right? We're gonna make sure that if we see this sort of thing happening, we're gonna do everything we can to stop it. And the same thing is true in the context. Uh, of the abortion debate, if men stand up and say, I want to defend and protect my preborn child, they're told, sit down, shut up, there's no place for that, that's toxic masculinity, it's her body, all of that. And so how can we start to, um, in, in a culture that tells men that this is not only something that they can't do, but something that's toxic, something that has to be rooted out, like we're created to want to protect and defend uh, the weaker and more vulnerable members of human society. And this is one of the only times in human history where men are told that they aren't allowed to do the thing that they were actually born and designed to do, right? If you go to museums across Europe, I was just in Europe again recently, you'll always see these beautiful paintings of um, strong young fathers and they're like fleeing a burning city if there's an army coming or there's a fire and they'll be like carrying half the members of their family on their back. And I always think like those paintings just show exactly. Exactly what this is all about, right?
1: You I don't see tell my me you've actually got in the
0: one in this studio. What's that? Oh, you've actually. This is okay, my. That's one.
1: <laughs> this is my so, favorite painting in the world.
0: Yeah. So for for the listeners, he's actually showing us a painting in his office of a young man carrying his aging father and, and his family Aeneas. out of a burning city. That's
1: Anias fleeing with his wife, his father, and his son. So this oh. is ex- this is exactly what what that's I'm talking Troy about, Burton. right? Like that's my and, mission, by the way. He's carrying his father leaving his wife and his son, he's leaving Troy. But remember, when Troy burns, what happens? He founded Rome.
0: Yeah. Like, even, even the you pagans that? understood that this so was the rule of
1: men. Rome, Italy. That's Aeneas fleeing Troy, carrying his family on his back. That's probably so, the painting you're talking about, right?
0: Yeah, that's actually one of the paintings I was referring to. So for <laughs> the, for, for yes. those who are listening to this Go and not right. watching this, Jason just showed me he's got a painting in his office. One of the paintings I was referring to. So so how do we in this unique moment in human history when, Wait, when so millions people aren't
1: going to see me in this because I didn't shave and came straight from the gym just so as a film guy. We could feel my manliness as we talked about men in the pro-life movement. Yeah, no,
0: know. It's, it's working for you, Jason. It's really working for you. Start. How do we start re- reclaiming what men were actually born to do, not only to the broader culture, to explain to them that, you know, you should be protecting uh, your girlfriend, your wife, you should be protecting your children, but also to to men who aren't joining the pro-life movement because essentially they've done one of the most unmasculine things I can think of, which is take their orders from aging feminists who tell them to sit down and shut up and and, and not do anything. It's incredibly emasculated. How do we start reaching these people?
1: I think we all had to make this decision, right? So, I gave a speech a couple of years ago to Jesuit high school, and I got this email from a, from a, a Jesuit priest who told me my, that my gratuitous use of gender pronouns was offensive. <laughs> that was the first time I learned that we couldn't use pronouns. And I just think we should just get rid of adverbs. But whatever. So it's a war against pronouns. And I replied, I don't care how it made you feel. I'm a man. <laughs> right. And, and I had to make this decision. And you and I talked about this offline. You know, growing up in the south side of Chicago, my grandfather was a tool and die maker for Ford, my dad's dad, my mom's dad, whose mother had seven husbands. Imagine growing up in the 20s with that, growing up in the south side of Chicago, who had no teeth left in his mouth by the time he was 17 because my grandmother's, great-grandmother's husbands would beat my grandpa up so bad. And he became a railroad man. He was the toughest guy you'd ever meet, power lifter, just violent, not a he was a stru- stru- uh, troubled, as you can imagine someone coming from that environment. I grew up around a r- lot of very tough guys. I grew up in a neighborhood with gangs um, and some pretty tough gangs like the Blackstone Rangers, the El Rukens, um, the Gangster Disciples. So I grew up around tough people, rough people, manly men. And I was always very well aware of the fact I wasn't very manly. Right. I wish I was more of a man. Like, Look at all these men. My grandfather, my dad's dad fought in World War II in Korea as an infantryman. Came back, lied to Ford, said he was a tool and die maker. Never had any training in that. Somehow convinced him of it and got the job. I don't even know what a tool and die maker is, okay? He was able to convince them he was one. And that's what he did. Um, He built his house by scratch. He literally came home from the war, went to a lumber yard, sort of buying lumber, and built a house. I got to go on YouTube to figure out how to change a light bulb. Like church, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, men were just so useful back then.
1: They were men, and they were men, and so I'm a shadow of those men that I grew up around. And some of it was toxic masculinity. You know, you watch that movie, uh, the original Ocean's Eleven, with Sinatra. Okay, that makes me want to join the National Organization of Women, almost. Not really, but you're like, wow, a little gross, and it exaggerated the negative aspects of of or what we were told as being a man, right?
0: When male aggression is oriented in the wrong direction, right. not to protecting and defending, but to predation.
1: Yes, exactly. And so, by the way, I think that was what birth feminism, right? So yeah, for sure. I, yeah. Um, and my wife, whenever she's she, whenever there's something crazy feminist, she goes, "It's because of you, men. <laughs> you men a lot." Yeah, yeah. Men. She's not wrong. Yeah, no, she's right. So, but I had to make a decision, Jonathan, uh, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, as I was be- going from being an atheist to a Christian, Catholic, in the pro life movement. I felt this desire to take on an affectation to be more like the other people around in the movement. Right. And I thought long and hard and realized I lack the fortitude and discipline to put on a charade. I just, right. wish I could, I wish I could pretend my ah shucks routine, ah shucks, you know, and then I realized I'm just going to be me because that's all I can do like me or not like me. That's your business. And it bothered me because I'm like, it's going to limit my usefulness to the movement. I right. Thought, I thought I had to affect the sort of Ned Flanders persona from The Simpsons. You know, howley totally there, Homer, and um, I just couldn't do it. And then I discovered something that a lot of men don't feel comfortable in the pro life movement. But through building relationships with me, I've brought a lot of these men into the movement. Right. And I hope people who don't even know me, men who don't even know me, like I highlight not my degrees, college degrees, or anything, but that I am a high school dropout that was raised by um, a single mom, you know, da 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 da, that I was last in my class. I highlight all these things. Why? Because I want men, guys, guys like from my neighborhood, to feel that they belong in this movement too. Right. Guys who struggled with drugs. Crime, these are the kids I grew up around, they're my friends still, you know, they're on my Facebook and they've all become pro life warriors, right? And they need to know we're not all by the way. If you're Ned Flanders, good for you. I'm not if you're from a, a Protestant Christian family in the Midwest, you were raised right and you're sweet and gentle and kind, and you and that's kind of who you are. Be you, yeah. That's what my argument don't affect exaggerated manliness, it's right, just be you. Be you. And whoever you are as a man, and there's a lot of ways to be manly, right? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of ways for men to express who they are as men. But don't hide it, just be you. And then that's gonna attract people. That's gonna attract men into the movement. And then women like that. I have a, a friend, she's uh, big in the post abortion healing movement. And we recently went to LA and we had a little party after party after unplanned. And all these women came, a lot of them celebrities, to hang out with us. We went to a comedy club, we we all hang out. And my friend said, you know why all these kind of Hollywood women want to spend time with you when you're in town? It's because they're post-abortive. Oh, interesting. It's something I had never thought of. Yeah, no kidding. And I thought it was because I was funny or what, I don't know, but fun to hang out with. But no, she said, no, Jason. So even women are attracted to it. So... But the main thing is for us, just as men, I want guys to know. We were were talking offline about how, you know, when I speak, I speak all over the country. In the next eight days, I've been home for three. I was gone for six. That's why I don't shave when I'm home. I was going to shave for you. I'm like it's unmanliness. This is just. (laughs) If this bothers you, this is the wrong. Go away. So, um, and you got, but you got a nice beard. So we were talking. I was talking to you about. I give these speeches. There's 500 people in the audience. There's always that one guy who's like a contractor, who's with the Knights of Columbus, who's been praying outside of abortion clinics for 40 years, Yeah, who's been the faithful supporter of his pregnancy center and his parish. And he looks at me like, you don't impress me, schmuck, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you're on stage giving a speech, but I know you're a schmuck. And I'm like, you know what? And the guy comes and shakes my hand. He's got like these big hands, like manly. And he looks at me like, you're not all that. I love those guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Whenever somebody says like the pro-life movement's not full of old white men now, I'm like, you guys have to work for another half century to get to where Joe Scheidler is. You know what I mean? Like these guys, these guys have been pouring, pouring themselves out for the pro-life movement for years and years and years and years. And I remember realizing that too, when I was giving pro-life speeches at these right to life dinners. I, saw, I, I know exactly the, the sort of guy that you're talking about. Uh, and I remember I had to give a speech once the day after the founder of that Right to Life organization had just passed away. And the only thing I could think of to say was, if we can see a light at the end of the tunnel in the abortion wars, it's because we stand on the shoulders of all of these men who have just been faithfully going to war against the abortion industry all of the time. And and, and in their quiet ways, showing us what a real man does. He doesn't give up. He gets up every day. He works for the women, for the children every day. All the time, but we're in a culture that's hostile to that. And I really want to figure out how we can better speak to men who have pro life convictions or at least sympathies, but don't feel like there's a place for them in the movement because all they hear from the, the pro-choice world, right, is you're a man, sit down and shut up, unless, of course, you're going to support abortion. And and then then please speak up because you're an ally, or, or however they refer to it these days. And even in the pro-life movement, to a degree, sometimes they get this idea that, well, they're not wanted because they're a male and their voice is somehow less valuable. But I, I have not found that the case, right? At the organization that I work for, we go out onto campus, we're in front of high schools, and I find it really easy. I remember getting um, targeted by this group of, of of young female university students once on a, on a big campus in Florida, and and they came up to me and and they were like, "You're you're a man, so like, what, what do you have to say about this issue?" And I could have been snarky, right? I could have said something like, "Well, arguments don't have genitals" or something like that, but I just said, "Look, actually, uh, the vast majority of abortions happen because the man wouldn't stand up and say." I will be there for you and that child no matter what, right? The Guttmacher Institute's own statistics indicate that just over 60% of abortions happen because of some pressure from outside, which means that well over 50% of these abortions are not taking place because the woman who's already developing an attachment to the child wants it, but because somebody, often the man, is pushing for it. And I remember uh, the, the girls, like, they their guards went down immediately. We had, like, a 30-minute conversation, and I, I just said, like, look, I think that one of the reasons women have abortions is because uh, men aren't standing up for their children. Either they're being passive and saying, it's up to you, or they're being aggressive and saying, you need to abort this baby. We don't want to ruin our lives. And within a half-an-hour conversation, all three of them changed their minds and became pro-life. And only— there's a lot of arguments that only a girl can make, but only a guy could have made that argument. Only a guy can really go after guys to girls, explain that men are a huge part of the problem, as you mentioned earlier, and so men have to be a huge part of the solution. And so how do we start, how do we start impressing that on people, on men with pro-life sympathies or convictions who are being persuaded by the culture and this attitude that it's not their issue to sort of sit on the sidelines and let this carnage continue?
1: Well, here's my, I'll give you a trigger warning for trolls. Hey, trolls, trigger warning. Uh, Men just need to act like men. Don't ask for permission. Show up. When I was an atheist in the pro-life movement, and in Hawaii, I was an atheist. I was in all kinds of mischief. It's an island. So everyone knew all the mischief I was into, that you can imagine a boy in his 20s to be into who's exploding, right? Who's an atheist, Randian. I was an eye rand objectivist. I didn't ask for permission to show up to pro-life events. I loved when they were uncomfortable when I showed up. And I will admit the smarmy, effeminate priest that ran the Newman Center that told me that you know, I was judgmental and I shouldn't talk, we shouldn't talk about abortion, was, I was repulsed by that. I was repulsed by the moral relativism I would get from the evangelical Christian clubs on campus when I tried to get them involved. Um, In fact, where I felt most comfortable was the mosque. As an atheist, I started a pro-life club on campus and I would go to church groups. I'd go to the mosque and I could talk like myself and they talk like guys, guys talk like guys. I'd go to the church and it was Father, uh, what did Father Grishel used to call him? Father McGillicuddy, you know? Father McGillicuddy was there and he he would say, hi, this is Father McGillicuddy, hi, no. And he would give me all these arguments on why I shouldn't do pro-life work on campus. And the evangelical ministry on campus, the InterVarsity Club leader would say that, that they are against abortion, but they're not gonna judge other people and tell other people what to do. Here I am an atheist, was utterly repulsed, but then I would go to pro-life events and I didn't care if they wanted me there. I would go speak at InterVarsity or the Newman Center, didn't ask to be invited. I would show up with my flyers. When they didn't want me there, it made me happy. Because I knew I was making them uncomfortable and they didn't like being uncomfortable and I didn't care. And uh, it's what I tell my black friends. We're like, Jason, they don't, we don't feel welcome in the pro-life movement. Like, I don't even know what that means. Just show up. Like, no one needs to give you an invitation to stand up for the child in the womb. They can say whatever they want, and I don't care. Like, I will never leave the side of the vulnerable. That's my apostolate, because I couldn't protect my own child. And so I pledge that I would for the rest of my life try to get try to get between the violent and the vulnerable, especially vulnerable children. Call me names, dox me, tweet at me, whatever. I don't care. And I'm not asking for permission to act like myself. And I would say this to others. I say this to the diversity. You know, we're the largest, most diverse social movement in the history of the pro- in the history of the world. I really believe. And when somebody is part of the alphabet community, as Dave Chappelle calls it, or other communities that have nothing to do with us, I'm like, listen, I want 330 million or 310 million pro-life Americans. I want us to be as united against abortion as we are cannibalism. And you don't need to be a Christian to not want to eat. To me, the two basic rules of the human family are we don't eat dead people, we don't eat people, and we don't kill our own children. Like, can we agree on that? And so I tell these diverse groups that tell me they don't feel welcome. I'm like, well, great. Who cares? You're not, who cares? Just stand up and defend children to your tribe, in your tribe, where you are. Show up at our events and feel strange. Make them feel strange. You feel strange. I was, I was the atheist in the 90s at pro-life events. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that people didn't know I was there, or didn't invite me. But that's what I would say you as a man. Just be you. Just be you. And uh, not that we want to be obnoxious or aggressive. Uh, not just, yeah. you know, I think one of the negative effects of Trump, who's been a great president on, on, on life of the child in the womb, is that a lot of conservatives meme his Queens demeanor. You know, this is a guy that was a contractor born in Queens in the forties. When I see, you know, 21 year old soy, latte drinking cream puffs try to act like they're a contractor from queens who was born in 1946 it's a little absurd to me um you know we don't need to act like that um unless that's who you are then be you
0: yeah i saw i saw one really funny tweet on that when when there was a couple of commentators saying we need to talk more like trump which i i never think is 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 true uh and, uh, he actually, uh, he actually had, he, maybe he basically was like, yeah, because when uh, your kids ask you what you did in the culture war of 2019, you can say, well, I was, I was a jackass on Twitter. Right? That's,
1: yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Being a jackass on Twitter is not activism.
0: Yeah. So, uh, w- one other thing I wanted to touch on that I've found a lot over the last 10 years, and I've written about this before, uh, for life site, um, is one of the things keeping a lot of men out of the pro-life movement is the fact that uh, internet pornography has become so ubiquitous, right? The rates of men that uh, that have, have gotten hooked on this digital toxin is is approaching the rate of, of 80%. And I've talked to a lot of guys who I knew were, like, very convicted about the pro-life movement. They really wanted to get involved, and they wouldn't show up for stuff. And I started having conversations with a bunch of them, and I'd be like, when did you start looking at porn? Every single one of them, that was the case. Because porn is such a powerful tool. Like they they know they know it's it's bad. Like none of them shut their laptop and are like, that was an hour well spent. I feel good about myself, right? Like they know that what they're doing is is terrible, and they know that they're contributing to the victimization of women and children by using the products the porn industry is selling them. But because it's such a, a powerful addiction, and because well, all human beings are sexual. And so the thing about pornography is there's something for everybody. There's something to trap uh, anybody. And so a lot of guys are are looking at what the pro-life movement does, which is protecting and defending women and children, uh, looking at themselves and the things that they might struggle with and they're saying, yeah, I'm just going to sort of sit this one out because obviously the pro-life movement doesn't want somebody somebody like me. And what I tell them is like, look, if you're not quitting porn for all the million amazing reasons to quit porn, then quit porn for the babies because somebody who knows how to how, how to tear down vice and build up virtue is exactly the sort of, of movement we need, right? We're a movement full of people who have had abortions, former abortion doctors, abortion clinic workers, right? We're People from every imaginable background united behind the idea that we need to protect and defend women and children. But I was wondering if, if if you had had any experience with this, or you talked to anybody about this? Because I have found that one of the key things keeping men out of the pro life movement is that in their private lives they're struggling with the usage of pornography.
1: Yeah, or I would even broaden that. I'd say yes, sexual morality, adultery, the usage of pornography, drugs, and I would say two things. Yes, you you have. There's so much in there. The first thing is, again, I would say the gift of your porn addiction, the gift, the gift of your opioid addiction, the gift of your depression.
0: Now you need to do a trigger warning for the Christian trolls.
1: The Christian trolls, gift. Let me finish the sentence, Christian trolls, and you won't be mad, is empathy and humility. Right. When you struggle with something and you come out of it, you can understand other people. You can have empathy and yes. charity for other people. So you need to hold yourself to the same standard you hold other people, but that means the same standard. That doesn't mean a lower standard or a higher standard. It means the same standard. And so when you can forgive and understand why other people could be trapped in pornography because of depression, loneliness, all of the things that lead people into this, or opioid addiction, whatever it is, then you can have the same understanding for yourself. And then you need to escape it. Like it says in scripture, take the board out of your eye so that you, you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right. That's the motivation. It's the love of your brother that forces you to take that plank out of your eye. Like if my brother didn't have a speck in his eye, I might, just leave the plank in my eye. Right. I joke, if it wasn't for the culture where I'd probably be living above a bar in Costa Rica. I don't <laughs> want to do all this. I don't want to be holy. I don't want to be a saint. I don't want to work relentlessly. I wish I did. You know, I was raised an atheist with all of those habits and inclinations. Then become a Christian until I was 30. Like, I feel the world pulling me. And I thank God for that. Because that gives me empathy, thoughtfulness, and the knowledge of the... the that there are all these people with little specks in their eye. And if I'm to help them, I can't be walking around with a plank in my eye. And, right. um, so I would say that. Um, and then I would say that to the men who are trapped, and women, a lot of women today are trapped in pornography. Yep. And especially the younger generation, I joke when I speak at high schools that if Michael J. Fox showed up in my doorstep, knowing what I know now, in 1984 with an iPhone, I'd have shot him. <laughs> said, <laughs> so get that thing away from me. You know, he showed, here's a laptop. Uh, it's connected to the World Wide Web. I'm like, what's that? I'd have like had to shoot him because I can't imagine being a 12-year-old and having yeah. access to all of that. I remember yep. I remember in the fifth or sixth grade, a friend rode his bike to my house, banged down the door and said, Follow me. He was so excited. You know, I thought we were actually gonna go after a rainbow. Because usually when we when, when we would go on these crazy bike adventures. We really thought we were gonna find gold at the other side of the rainbow. We might have to beat up a leprechaun, you know, which we were willing to do. And so I really was like, I don't see, where's the rainbow? And we're racing on our bikes. Well, next thing I know, I see bikes coming from every je- every direction, you know? Like bikes from this neighborhood and that neighborhood. There's like a bike army. We get to this nasty gas station and behind the gas station is a dumpster. Behind the dumpster, there's like a, uh, a magazine. And all these boys from all the neighborhoods around are standing over that magazine, looking at these images. And I remember every image in that magazine to this day. Yeah. Every image. Now, you know, that was my pornography experience. Other than that, we had, uh, the Sears catalog, right? The Sears catalog was pornography, you know, in the seventies and eighties.
0: Yeah. There's, it's a long way. It's a long way from here till there.
1: Yeah, you know, you don't even you don't know what a film strip is, and you probably don't know what a Sears catalog is. But trust me, Sears catalog was as close to pornography as most boys got. And that was troublesome enough. And so I just can't imagine. So my heart breaks for young men. I would say, you, you this is your battle, guys. You do not hate yourself. It's completely under you. This is designed to hook you, trap you. They start when they're boys or girls out of curiosity because it's curious, right? You're curious. And then as you're going through puberty, what's really even sad is oftentimes they're exposed to this before puberty. And I don't even know how, imagine how damaging that is. And that is they're going through puberty. You know, I talk to these young men often and I'll say, let me ask you a question. A young woman lets you hold her hand first or did you see uh, hardcore pornography first? Which happened first in your lifetime? I have not met a young man yet. A man under 30 yet who's told me they held a girl's hand before they saw hardcore pornography. And I don't know about you, but if you remember, I remember the first girl at a roller rink who I asked her to slow dance, like in the sixth grade, seventh grade, sixth grade. I remember her, we're still friends in social media. And I said, you know, can I can you will you skate with me? And we were skating, and she grabbed my hand, it's like Better than the Bears winning the Super Bowl, you know? and But imagine you... Yeah, and there's
0: a generation that didn't get to experience any of that. They
1: never know what it's like to be so excited that a young woman, while you're skating around, listening to Hall & Oates, uh, grabs your hand and then you share cheese fries and a Coca-Cola, that before they ever have that experience, that's just destroyed by pornography. Now, some people... are scrupulous like well that's not the problem I'm not saying that's the problem that's not the heart of the problem but to me that's just like a thermometer just use your imagination of everything that's being robbed from them and I think it's interesting that I have the book over here somewhere that it was a very promiscuous homosexual named Alan Bloom who died of HIV AIDS who wrote a book called the closing of the American mind he was one of Leo Strauss's yes And why did Alan Bloom understand before the rest of us the damage that promiscuity would do to the whole American society? It's because he was a very promiscuous man, right? So he got it. And a very decadent man, right? Very interesting man. There's a book by Saul Bellow on Ravelstein on on sort of the life of Alan Bloom. But uh, good book to read to begin to understand it. But now, yes. So I would just say to the young men listening, or older men, divorced men, you know, men in, in marriages that are struggling, whatever the case may be, hold yourself to the same standard, not higher or lower. And while you're grappling with this, still stand up for the vulnerable. Yeah. Never abandon the vulnerable. I don't want firemen to leave the firehouse because they're looking at pornography. Yeah. Do,
0: you ever, uh, do you ever think one of the things that, that I, I think society has done to so effectively emasculate men is it's managed to create facsimile experiences that cater to what men are supposed to be so men used to like want to be warriors fight for something right build a home protect the family um, same thing right like if you wanted to have sex you would you would you would pursue a woman you would win her over and then you would get married. But now you've got internet porn that covers that as you just pointed out, right People can see hardcore pornography before they ever hold somebody's hand. So the sexual experiences have been replaced by this non-stop toxin you can get when you're eight years old. and then on the other hand, you've got video games and just for all the trolls who are gonna trash me on this, just hear me out a minute. I'm not saying all video games are wrong. What I'm saying is that video games are giving a lot of young men the adrenaline rush that you used to only get by doing something productive. Like, you can get the same adrenaline rush that you used to have to get after a hard day's physical labor, after doing something really worth doing, after getting out there and like slaying a metaphorical dragon in a real way, and now you can get that same rush being an utterly useless human being in your mom's basement with a console and you didn't even put on pants uh, that day, right? And so our culture has basically domesticated and emasculated men by taking the two main driving forces for most lives the, the lives of most men throughout history, which is the desire to accomplish, build, protect, defend something, and then the desire to you know start a family uh, and, and, and be in love with a woman. And we've just replaced those two things so effectively that it's knocked a lot of men right out of the game because they don't need to actually do any hard work to get the the rush, whether it's the sexual rush or the adrenaline rush that you used to have to do something for.
1: Yeah, right. So they go to pornography, then they tweet a nasty tweet at someone, and they they go to pornography, they think they have a relationship. They do a nasty tweet against somebody, they think they're engaged in the political life of their community. Uh, (laughs) They go play Fortnite, they think they're defending the West from, uh, I don't know, what are you fighting Fortnite? People jumping out of buses, whatever it is, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, it's just sad. And this is why we're Christians, right? And so what's great about that, and I'm a big admirer of Rene Girard, and Rene Girard has really helped to guide and direct my apostolate, um, which is just this idea of living in solidarity with the vulnerable to the point of your vulnerability, that you should be as vulnerable as those you're serving. So when we look at just our – we all swim in the same same water, right? We're, we're all swimming around the same toxic suit. We all struggle. All of us struggle. All of us struggle with the same problems. And that's, yep. you know, so we need to be loving and kind and free. And it's hard sometimes we get angry. That's fine. But we're Christians and we need to stay balanced. We need to know that everyone we're dealing with and talking to is made in the image of likeness of God. And, and it is so hard because of the culture wars, right? Like you want to talk about men being men. And then there's the young man who's listening who recognizes that he's a little effeminate and, He's feeling like, and I don't want to hurt anybody. I think that's the other thing about being a man. It's like the last thing I ever, ever want to do ever is make somebody who is insecure, more insecure, who's weak, feel frightened.
0: Well, anybody can stand up for the vulnerable. It doesn't matter what kind of man you are. That's right. You don't have to be a a
1: power lifter, right?
0: No, exactly. You just need to stand up for the weak and vulnerable. And there are people that you can reach. That other people can't, right? That different men have different skills and talents, but, but the pro-life movement can use all of them.
1: Yes. And I think in, in the end, what it is to be a Christian is to love God and love your brother, love your neighbor and, um, be thoughtless of the consequences to yourself. And so if as a man standing up for life gets you called names, so be it. Yeah, people, know, yeah. Now, my big fear was that I would be counterproductive to the movement or hurt the movement or, and, but that's just, no, no one should have that worry because here's what's so great. We're such a tribal society. We're all a part of these countless little tribes that be you where you are and the people around you are your tribe. Even if, you know, they're, they're who you are, whatever part of the country you are from, I'm, I, I've lived in Hawaii for 31 years. I I traveled the country relentlessly. In the past six weeks, I've been to like 14 states. You know, I, I get to see in the next seven days, I'll be speaking in, in six states in seven days. Um, and uh, so, and I'm in Hawaii today, so it's a lot of flying ahead of me. And uh, I get to see how big and diverse this country is. Well, within each community, within each state, there's diversity. In fact, I had my friends from North Dakota over last night, and they were telling us how if my wife and I moved to their town in North Dakota, how exotic our family would be because she's Asian, their kids are mixed, and and they were explaining to us what like the Scandinavian farmer culture of their town is like, and it's just so unbelievable. Well, you know, you're a skater, you're 17 years old, and you're obsessed with skateboard. Well, you're going to be able to talk to skateboarders. You're a fifth generation Norwegian farmer and. Uh, north, northeastern North Dakota. Well, when you're, you know, at the granary eating your breakfast with the other farmers who are fifth generation Norwegian men, you're them. Be you. And yeah, like, I love Scott Hahn. And when I converted, I had this, I don't know how many converts to the faith who start reading Scott Hahn think they have to become Scott Hahn. And it dawned on me, Scott Hahn comes from a mainline Protestant tradition. It's who he is. He reminds me today of kind of like a mainline Protestant guy. He's his tribe. He's been very effective at speaking to people in his tribe and, uh, and and who are like him. But we don't need to be Scott Hahn. We need Scott Hahn to be Scott Hahn.
0: Right. So final final question on this one to wrap up the discussion on men. I I knew it was going to go. I knew it was going to go this long. Um, if you could say one thing to an audience full of just young men. Who are struggling with all the things that we just went through? Don't know if they're useful to the pro-life movement. You know, you've experienced one of the most horrifying things a man can in the pro-life movement—the loss of your own child, Jessica—and uh, and you've also been in the movement for thirty years. You've you've worked in every every part of the movement. There you go. For for those who are listening, it's a it's a stone painted with the name of his daughter, Jessica. This
1: is one of the best Jessica gifts Jones. anyone ever gave me. So thank you for saying her name.
0: What would you say to the, to all those young men listening with the breadth of experience and the diversity of the experience that you have across the pro-life movement?
1: You know, I would, one thing I would say is, you know, be what you want to be a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer. You want to take over your father's business. You want to be an entrepreneur. You want to be a middle school teacher, you know, pursue what it is that you want to pursue. Be excellent. Be great. Be uh, an involved member in your family, in your community. but this is what I would say. Uh, and I have been, in, not, everyone, not everyone's going to be an activist. We're not all called to be activists. No, no, for sure. And uh, so, but we, you know, be who you are, but where you are, where you are, in medical school, like my brother, maybe my brother's a bounty hunter. Well, you're chasing bounties and <laughs> okay. everglades of Florida. <laughs> Florida, whatever you're doing, be you. But always stand with the vulnerable. Always stand with the weak. Make that the direction of your life. When one member of your family is struggling with drug addiction, and the other member of your family just built the the, the replacement to Facebook and is a billionaire, and everyone's flocking to that cousin, you flock to the other cousin. Um, You know, when you have to decide to go to uh, a party, Um, with, uh, you know, your friends or go volunteer at the soup kitchen for your local, if there's a conflict, make sure you order your life to serve the vulnerable. That's your personal apostolate. And never, ever, ever abandon the child in the womb. When they undermine in a conversation at your workplace, somebody thrust abortion in everybody's day, all day, every day, in every conversation. But whenever the topic is brought up, Whenever the dignity of the child in the womb is undermined or whenever somebody demeans someone because of their ethnicity or race, you stand with them. You make that your guiding principle because the sort of mimetic push for all of us, all of us, is to side with the crowd against the weak. You know, you can look at even Peter when he was in the crowd denied Christ, right? So all of us know that that's going to be our impulses to deny the vulnerable. We need the habit of the stand with the vulnerable. When those young men at Covington Catholic became as vulnerable as the child in the womb because they dared stand with the child in the womb at this, the March for Life, even mm-hmm. pro-life leaders without, meeting a, without missing a beat attacked those Covington Catholic boys. They joined the mob. I actually defended them immediately. I think I wrote an article for Life Sites. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: I I waited a day before I said anything because I wasn't going to instantly believe the sort of people who lie about everything else. Yeah.
1: And I I said that I followed the Rene Girard rule, which is stand with the scapegoat against the mob. That's what I would say to your young men. Order your life around the vulnerable. Never see yourself as vulnerable. All of your things, I always tell people I'm dyslexic, I have ADHD, I was born to a teenager, became a teen parent, I'm a high school dropout, it was last in his class. The reason I say that is I want people to get their excuses out of their way. <laughs> Those aren't excuses. Those are my opportunities. Dyslexia is a great challenge. I have face blindness. You probably don't even know what it is. If I saw you at the grocery store, I wouldn't even know who you were. I'd have to pretend. It's Imagine you're involved in politics. You've got to deal with that. I can't recognize yeah. people, So what? Yay. It's a great challenge. Um, I'm a high school dropout. Great. All of these things are opportunities, right? All of the things. So anything that makes me vulnerable is an opportunity for empathy. That's how I see it, because I'm here to serve. Why? Because we know we've got the grace to know and love Jesus Christ, to know what our calling in life is. Now, here's the thing. And I know we're going over, but I, I really want to say this. When I graduated from the University of Hawaii, I had a great professor. His name was Oliver Lee. His father was um, the son of a nationalist general in China. His mother was the son of a Nazi officer. Then he went to Harvard, and he became a a Maoist, of all things. Okay. Famous class of 51. Very interesting guy. But he was my professor. And actually, believe it or not, he was a very humane guy, but just reacted to his – it was very Freudian to me his, his, his attraction of Maoism. And, uh, he took me to dinner or lunch after graduating and with tears in his eyes, he said, Jason, you're one of the brightest students I've had since I started teaching. And, um, but I want to tell you, you're going to live a very miserable life, a very small life, be, unless you drop your obsession with abortion. Hmm. You can go places and do great things if you just drop your obsession with abortion. Do you know, I 100% believed him, but I didn't care. I said, Dr. Lee, if that's true, he said, you're going to be a a, a mall cop. You're going to be a cop at the mall. And I said, well, that's fine. But in my free time, I'll fight abortion. And I kind of believed him. Okay. Well, for the next two years after that, I had to live in the, floor of the office of my pro-life organization and shower at the beach for two years, rode my bike to the beach and showered while I worked there and also waited tables in Waikiki. You know, a lot of hardship and struggling step by step, but here's what I will tell you, Jonathan, not bragging, just saying, (laughs) I have never met a person who's had to have a more beautiful, rich life than me. The experiences I've had, who my friends are, across the greatest people across all these industries, the bravest people, the bravest people from every nook and cranny of the world. They're my friends. The great saints of our age are my friends. The children and grandchildren of the great, literally canonized saints, some of them, are my friends. The Popiescu family, right, for example. Father Jersey's family, Jerzy's family. Why is this? Why? Because by God's grace, For whatever reason, I have never wavered. I've never abandoned the child in the womb. Lived in the floor of my office, biked and showered at the beach. My motto I gave myself was live small so I can live large. And this is what I'm promising you guys. Live small so you can live large. Order your life around the vulnerable. Never flee the weak. Even today, I'm gonna get political on you. I'm a conservative. I'm telling you I'm a Republican. I love, I'm a historian of the Republican party. I love it. We were founded to end slavery, fought for civil rights, gave women the right to vote. Army Air Corps generals that, 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 that resigned in World War II because of bombing of civilians were all Republicans. We stood up to totalitarianism. The best political party in the history of the world, not saints, not perfect, not the Holy Roman Catholic Church. It's not holy, but it's the best political party that ever was. But one of the most shameful things I'm seeing right now is the the, the spin, and the confusion around abandoning the Kurds. And I will stand up to my own party, my own president, my own friends, my own donors. I will stand up against the world to stand with the Kurds, the Yazidis, the Chaldeans, the Assyrians. That's, that's it, why? Because I had to train myself. There's always good excuses to leave the week. There's always pragmatic and practical reasons. Jason, shut up with, why you stop these articles? You're making Republicans mad, your donors mad on the Kurds. You're hurting your pro-life apostolate. My apostolate is to protect the child, my apostolate is to protect the vulnerable from violence. If I begin weighing, being practical or pragmatic, I don't do that. My rule is never leave the side of the vulnerable. And of the men watching this here right now, that's what we need. We never want to leave anyone alone. I don't want any weak person, sad person, depressed. I had a friend commit suicide recently. There's so many opportunities for us to put into practice in our life, thoughtfulness. Like my friend who committed suicide, and never even knew she suffered with depression. And I thought, why wasn't I focused, paying attention? That's what we need to do as men. We need to be thoughtful and focused, self-sacrificing, order our life around one thing, stand with vulnerable. That's why I love pregnancy centers. Because pregnancy centers are with the most vulnerable members of our community at the most vulnerable moment of their life. Young women, poor women, abused women. These women are already vulnerable. But when they walk through the door of the pregnancy center, they have never even been more vulnerable. And that's when the pregnancy center is with them. So the most manly thing you can do is write the biggest check now to your local pregnancy center. And if you have time, volunteer. If you have money, give it to them. So that's that's it. I'm sorry I talked too much.
0: No, not at all. Jason, thanks a million for taking the time. I really appreciate you coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with activist, filmmaker, and pro-lifer Jason Jones on Men in the Pro-Life Movement. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to hear past shows, you can head over to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast button. You can also check out lifesightnews.com for breaking stories on pro-life and pro-family issues from across North America and around the world. We're on every podcast platform. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, iTunes. Pippa, you name it. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week.